Well, you may have noted what we're supposed to cover today. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 70. I hope you're planning on skipping lunch. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually the plan. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I want to give you something to look at, though. When you turn to Ezra chapter 2, you're going to see genealogy. And if I were to put you on a lie detector test right now, and you know you have those read through the Bible apps, are you actually reading through the Bible? There's some that are not already confessing. You just take a look at Ezra chapter 2 and you read the first verse or two and then you flip the page. There may be too many of us that do that. I'd like to give you some notes first off before we get started by way of introduction. Bruce Walkey, um, Hebrew scholar, writes about Ezra 2, and he says this. He says, chapters like Ezra 2 are among the most uninviting portions of the Bible. To the modern reader, to the modern reader, both because of their tedious nature and because of their overtones of racial exclusivism, exclusivism and pride. Now, we'll talk a little bit at the very end about the sort of racial uh, racism, perhaps, that some is going on. I don't think it is, but we'll talk about that. But the fact is, he's right in a sense to the modern reader. Too often times we look at genealogy like, oh, I don't want to read this. And you know what we fail to note, don't you? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, not some, but all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I think it's important for us to realize that. And sometimes as believers, we start to take the viewpoint of the world. Well, that's just, we just skip over those parts. No, we don't skip over those parts. We read them. There's something in there for us. And yet, I will also tell you, many times with genealogies, you have to dig a little deeper to get to uh, the gold, if you will. Uh, it's important to note, and I heard somebody just this past week say this, it's not new with them or with me, is the Bible was not written to you. The Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. So when you consider Genesis through Deuteronomy, it was written specifically to the nation of Israel. Uh, we have Luke and Acts were written specifically to Theophilus, and yet Ultimately, the Bible, all of it, was written for you. There are lessons to glean from it. Oh, there's things to learn about the Lord, the sinfulness of man, God's promises kept. I love the way Martin Luther said it. He said, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And too many times with the genealogies, we just kind of, it's like those Charlie Brown old uh, television shows where the teacher speaks and all you can hear is wonk, 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 wonk. I think we do this with genealogies. Perish that thought. There's purposes for these genealogies, and I'll give them threefold to you. Number one, instruction. Instruction. And the point specifically in this text is the Lord is going to keep his word. He said, after 70 years, I'm going to return you to the land and hear are the names. So it's really a monument to God's faithfulness. It's for our instruction. Number two is written for our endurance. 
We need to consider when we look at these people's names, these were actual people who lived, who existed, who struggled on a four-month journey, 900 miles to go back to the land of promise. Why? Because God told them to do it. And we need to consider that. It's much like Hebrews 11, when we look at that list of the faithful, that's the endurance that you and I need in the time in which we live. And finally, number three, encouragement. Encouragement. What does this text teach us about the Lord? If he keeps his promises to his ancient people, won't he keep his promises to us as well? So instruction, endurance, encouragement. There's actually a great verse for this. Romans 15:4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here at Grace Church, we do not unhitch the Old Testament from the New. The early church, what was their Bible? It was the Old Testament. And they therefore would show the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we, we hold tight to it like we do the New Testament. So as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God keeps his promises. We saw that God is stirring up the spirits, not only Cyrus, but his people. And now we're going to study those who chose to return. Those who chose to return. There's eight groups here, folks. Eight groups. And what we're going to see is that verses 2 through 58, they can prove their descent. That means they're either ethnically children of, or of Abraham, or they were from, 70 years ago, from Israel. And then verses 59 through 63, those who cannot prove their descent. What happens to them? Uh, the eight groups are listed uh, quickly here. Number one, we see the leaders in verse 2a. Then we see the laymen, or just the common folk, uh, in verse 2b through 35. The priest, 36 through 39. The Levites, 40 through 42. The temple servants, 43 through 54. Uh, number six, we have sons of Solomon's servants, 55 through 58. And then there's these last two groups that are very suspect. Number seven is, is the Israelites of doubtful origin, verses 59 and 60. And then number eight, priests of doubtful origin, 61 through 63. You may have thought, wait, there was no scripture reading. Well, the reason why is because I'm going to be giving a scripture reading as we go through here, and I didn't want to put anybody through that because <laughs> those names are not easy. But one thing I'll also note before we go straight into the text is these folks that you see listed, they didn't leave all in one fell swoop. It happened over a 23-year time period, uh, year 538 to 515 B.C. for you uh, genealogical nerds out there. So take a look. This is the word of God. Chapter two, verse one through two A. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. Here we have the leaders. Did you catch the number? It's 11. And yet I will note this, in Nehemiah 7, we see have the, almost the exact same list. And there we have 12 names. So in all likelihood, 
the name Nehemiah, he dropped out in the course of copying. We have a solid text here, folks. I'm not denying that. But sometimes the scribes may have left out a name. So I think the text is actually trying to show us there's 12. There's 12 leaders. Thus reminiscent of what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And in a future tense, reminiscent of the 12 apostles. The Lord likes the number 12 here. Specifically, he uses that number as representative of a people. And so when he got the 12 apostles, the idea is they are representative of this new Israel. He doesn't turn to the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the Sadducees. He goes to the common people. Back to our text here, though, we have these 12 leaders. I'll just give you, in each of these, we're not going to cover each of these names, but just kind of picking and choosing some that have the most uh, significance. Zerubbabel, his name means uh, sown in Babylon. You can see that in his name, Zeru. Babel. Um, he's the grandson of King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin was wicked, but Zerubbabel was a godly man. Uh, and you have to wonder, and the people wondered at that time, if you're a Jew, is this the promised Messiah? Is this the one? Because remember, the way it worked is the Messiah was supposed to come through Abraham, first spoken about in Genesis 3.15, the one who had, who had crushed the serpent, then we find out later it comes through Abraham. Abraham's got two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. It's going to go through Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the wicked son. Oh, Jacob is the wicked son as well. And yet the Lord chooses Jacob, goes through him to the 12 sons, thus the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of those 12 tribes, I don't know about you, but if I were the Lord, I would have chosen Joseph and his sons to have the Messiah come through. But I'm not the Lord, and neither are you. He chooses Judah, whose name means praise, interestingly enough. And through the tribe of Judah, we see that later on it will come through the line of the son of Jesse named David, all the way down. And now we've got Zerubbabel. So the Jews at that time must have been thinking, perhaps this is the one that will get rid of our enemies. He will lead us back to the promised land. He will be the Messiah, They'd have to wait much longer, but all in God's timing. Then we've got also Jeshua here. Jeshua is Zerubbabel's fellow leader. They're, they're kind of, they work together. Jeshua is the high priest. He also is the grandson of a last high priest, as Zerubbabel was grandson of a king. Here, Jeshua is the grandson of a high priest. He's going to reestablish temple worship. And you may think, hmm, Jeshua, that sounds interesting. It sounds a little bit like the Aramaic word, Yeshua, which we would translate in English as Jesus, right? So interestingly enough, Jesus, though, doesn't have just the title of priest, but he has priest, king, and prophet. Continuing on with other names, we've got Nehemiah. This is not the same Nehemiah that we'll study soon. He would come 100 years later. And then we've got Mordecai. This is not Esther's cousin uh, who would live 50 years after this time frame. They all return each to his own town. So the Jews are returning to their ancestral lands set apart to them by Joshua. And as I mentioned, there's two ways that these exiles are going to claim that they're going back to the right place. First off, they're sons of. That means they're, they've got a family genealogy. I'm the son of, of Rod or Rodney my dad's name. 
Uh, and you also have people that are men of. That means 70 years back, their grandsister, uh, rather their grandparents were living in Jericho or Bethlehem. Okay? So let's go into it and we'll talk about a few of these names. The number of the men of the people of Israel. Here's our second group, the common men. The sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. Sons of Arah, 775. Sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. Sons of Babai, 623. Sons of Osgod, 1,222. Sons of Donakim, 666. Sons of Bigvi, 2,056. Sons of Adin, 454. Sons of Atir of Hezekiah, 98. Sons of Bazai, 323. Sons of Jorah, 112. Sons of Hashun, 223. Sons of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. Men of Natapha, 56. Men of Anathoth, 128. Sons of Asmapheth, 42. Sons of Kirath Arim, Shephara, and Biroth, 743. Sons of Rama and Geba, 621. Sons, uh, rather, men of Mikmas, 122. Men of Bethel and Ai, 223. Sons of Nebo, 52. Sons of Migbish, 156, sons of the other Elam, 1,254, sons of Harim, 320, sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ano, 725, men of Jericho, 345, sons of Senegaya, 3,630. Okay. Some of these names have biblical meanings. Others do not. I just think it's interesting. We won't spend much time on these, but if you're looking for a great name for a son, Shephatiah is a solid name in verse four. Shephatiah, it means the Lord has judged. The Lord has judged. Bani, you'll find in verse 10. Bani is a short form, a short form of Benaniah. It means the Lord has built. The Lord has built. But then in the mix of these sort of biblical terminology names, you also have nicknames that you may not realize since you don't typically speak Hebrew. In verse 16, you have got atir. Atir means lefty. You can't help but wonder if Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings used that one in their song. Um, Hashum in verse 19 means broad nose, which is a bit of an unfortunate name for him. That's the common men. Let's take a look at the priests, verse 36 through 39. The priest, the son of Jediah, the son of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emir, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. Now, here we have the priest. Just to kind of jog your memory regarding the Old Testament, the priests are not just of the tribe of Levi, but they are the direct descendants of who? Aaron. Aaron. That was the priestly line. Uh, the first high priest was Aaron. Uh, David organized the priests into 24 families, and yet you may not have caught it. How many families are represented here? Four. What's that telling you? It's telling you that most of the priests don't want to come back to the land. They want to stay in Babylon. 
Um, but suffice it to say, with such a small group, perhaps four priests would take care of them, or four families of priests. Now let's take a look at the Levites, verse 40 through 42, and we'll spend some time here talking about the Levites. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, uh, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, so there were singers and there were also gatekeepers that were part of the Levites. Sons of Shalom, sons of Atir, sons of Talman, sons of Akub, sons of Hatita, sons of Shobai, in all 139. So the Levites of the tribe of Levi assist the priests in worship. Now, I don't see right now any shocked looks right now. I should. And you say, what's, what's the gig? What, what is it? Well, I'll say it again. Let's see if we get any shocked looks. Okay, the priest, if you remember, the numbers were up into the thousands. And yet the, the Levites have, oh, in all, 139. No? Okay, well, some of your kids, are they're on to it. So here's the way it works. The Levites of the tribe of Levi assist the priest in worship. I told you that. But it is shocking here, this number because there are 10 times as many priests as Levites that go back to Jerusalem. The number of Levites is always larger than the priests. Why? Because the priests come out of the tribe of Levi. It's a very small contingent that should come out of this. So it would be like this. In the military, we've got the army, and you've got the Green Berets that come out of the army, the special force from the army. You would never expect the larger contingent to be just regular army folk in a, change that, a, a, a regular larger group rather being green berets, but a very tiny group in the army. No, it's just the opposite. What's going on here? Why didn't more Levites return? Why aren't they going back home? Well, in true to form, I'll give you three options, although I'm mostly drawn to the second and the third one. First reason why they didn't go back is not so many Levites were exiled to Babylon due to their lower status than the priests. If you remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you remember which class they were in? Lower class, uh, like middle class or upper class? Upper class. These folks were, and that's what the Babylonians had it. They would take the best. And later on, they took many more, but they left the poorest to run the, the nation of Judah, okay? So maybe not many Levites went, and they were kind of in charge of the menial work. Maybe. I think it's more likely two and three. And the reason why I think it's more likely two or three, because of some of the works of Josephus, who wrote that many of the Jews stayed in Babylon. They didn't go. So a second reason why is the Levites, remember, they could not own land in Israel, but were set apart for God and supported by God's people. Here in Babylon, they got to own land. They're not going to go back to Israel. They're not going to go back to the land of Judah. And, and if you're wondering why don't they own land, then let's go a little bit further back. Uh, Jacob, when he brings his sons back to the promised land, we're going hundreds of years back now, uh, he has two sons in particular that seem to be very impetuous. Um, Jacob's daughter, uh, Dinah, was, was um, violated by one of the Canaanites in the land. And uh, Jacob, it says he was upset about it. But listen, men, 
He did nothing. And I would tell you this, when you don't take care of things in your family, somebody else is going to take care of it for you. And it's not going to go the way you, you were planning. Uh, so Jacob's two sons, Levi and Simeon, decide, I've got an idea. Let's meet together with that, uh, that man that hurt our sister as well as his dad. And we'll say, all you have to do is be circumcised, all the men in the city, and then we will become one with you. Which was pretty good for these folks, uh, Shechem in the city, because, hey, the Israelites, these, these 12 sons of Jacob have got some money, they've got crops, they've got lots of livestock. And so they do that. Three days later, uh, Simeon and Levi go through and they slaughter all the men. They kill them all. Uh, Jacob, scared to death, he takes the family and the Lord and sovereignly protected them as they moved south. But Jacob didn't forget it. And at the end of his life, while he is blessing his sons, he looks at Levi and Simeon and says, your tribe gets no land. Y'all will be... um, dissipated throughout the tribes. And so sure enough, the tribe of Simeon kind of got lost in the midst of Judah in the south. And Levi didn't get land either, but God in his kindness turned the curse into a blessing so that Levi would be known as God's uh, priestly tribe. Why would they be known as God's priestly tribe? One more story. Moses, when he's up on the top of the mountain and uh, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and Joshua, uh, basically Moses on his way down, Joshua says, it sound like the, sounds like the sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, that's not a sound of war. And what's going on? Golden calf is being made by Aaron, where he says, I threw it in there, and it came out a calf. <laughs> I love his story. Way to go, Aaron. Um, and the people were basically committing all sorts of idolatry and immorality. And so what Moses, when he comes back down, you know the story, he crashes the the Ten Commandments, and then he says, all who is on God's side come to me, and all of his fellow companions, the Levites, come to him. And he says, strap on your sword, kill every single one of them that are engaging in this. And they do, and God says, that's my people, and I want those people to serve as my priestly class. Folks, there's something important about zeal that is often, lot, often left out in our society. So, now don't strap on your sword and kill people, to be clear. But at the time period, it was the right thing to do. We'd rather be more zealous with the gospel. Um, but the Lord turned the curse into a blessing. So, but now the Levites are in Babylon, and they're like, I like having my 20 acres out here. I don't wanna, I don't wanna go back. Uh, number three, another option, and this is something very similar to this, is some speculate a gentleman by the name of David Guzik, who's a commentator. He says, some speculate the Levites were particularly invested in worship at the high places, scattered on the hills and all around pre-exilic Israel and Judah. The purifying fires of exile effectively burned out this idolatrous impulse. Therefore, few Levites wanted to return to the promised land. So the way this Uh, option is this, is that the Levites were doing the high place worships instead of Jerusalem. But once Judah was sent to Babylon, when she came back, she was still big sinners. But one thing she didn't go back to was the idolatry of Baal worship. They didn't go back to that. So now perhaps these Levites are saying, you know what? I'm enjoying being part of the varsity. I don't want to go back. I want to, you know, I, I like being 
the big man on campus. And uh, it's interesting, that's not what the Lord called them to. And so they would rather just hide that talent in the ground. You know, it's not just Levites though, is it? Believer, can we do this as well? The Lord has not called me to something I want to do. I don't want to do that. I I don't want to do this. I want to do that. And we start to compare ourselves to other people, which comparison is always a sign of pride. Always. Because we feel like I deserve better than this. And yet here at Grace, what we teach is what all churches should be teaching is the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. That means that my role is not any bigger than yours. The elders do not have a red phone to the Lord. We don't have any of those things. And our main job, no matter what position you may find yourself in, 1 Corinthians 7, whatever the Lord has called you to, stay put. Trust the Lord until he moves you to something else. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, Presbyterian theologian of the 20th century, has a great quote on this. He says this, one thing that has encouraged me as I have wrestled with such questions in my own life is the way God uses Moses' rod, a stick of wood. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. Quote, God so used a stick of wood, in quotes, can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. So, then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. But if a Christian is consecrated, that means set apart. I mean, he's going full force with God's purpose for his life. Does this mean he will be in a big place instead of a little place? The answer, we must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight, there are no little people and there are no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. That's the name of his book, No Little Little People and No Little Places. And y'all, we forget that. And I think in the age in which we live, in which to be something, you have to be up on a screen, you have to be doing something big for God. I hate that phrase. Let me just tell you that. I despise that phrase. What is that connoting? that other people that are working with, uh, perhaps in the nursery, are working, cleaning dishes, doing other things, they're not really big. They're not doing big things for God. It really does. It, it connotes this sort of, and it really, when it comes down to it, when you say you want to do something big for God, maybe it's not God you want to do it for. Maybe it's you. Very convicted about this. 2 Corinthians 16, 9, it says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's what God looks for. He looks for faithfulness. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, I don't know her name. You don't either, for that matter. 2 Kings chapter 5, you have Naaman. Naaman has taken captive a little Israelite girl And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. This little girl cares about her master who kidnapped her, took her. And amazing thing about it is God used this little girl so that Naaman, we will one day see him in heaven. 
and we'll never know this little girl's name. I hope the Lord will introduce us to her in heaven. He didn't have to. No little people, no little places. Another story that historical accounts share with us. January 6, 1850, a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon, who was the biggest, one of the biggest names in the world in the 19th century. He was uh, pastor of the largest church, um, whatever that means, but it was, it was huge, and people would know him. He was brilliant, um, but what's fascinating is he, he was in a snowstorm at age 15, and as he was on his way to church, he couldn't make it there, so he had to stop off at a small Methodist church, and he writes what happened. He said, an unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon writes, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. <laughs> there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery, and he said, that young man looks very miserable. And he shouted, look, look, young man, look, look now. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a savior Jesus Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe in that I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow. What's the name of that Methodist lay preacher? No one knows. You see, with the Lord, there are no little people and no little places. Continuing on, let's talk about the fifth group, our temple servants, verse 43 through 54. The sons of Zihah, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tebeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siyah, sons of Padon, sons of Lebanon, sons of Hagabath, sons of Akub, sons of Hagab, sons of Shalmai, sons of Hanan, sons of Gidel, sons of Gahar, sons of Reaiah, sons of Rezim, sons of Nakoda, sons of Gazum, sons of Uzzah, sons of Pesea, sons of Besai, sons of Asna, sons of Maunim, sons of Nephissim, sons of Bakbuk, sons of Hakufa, sons of Harhur, sons of Bazuluth, sons of Mahida, sons of Harsha, sons of Barkas, sons of Sisera, sons of Tima, sons of Nezia, sons of Atifa. Here we have the temple servants. Uh, David had established this, this order to assist the Levites. Who were they? We think they were the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, if you remember that story, Joshua is taking his troops in and they're going to conquer the whole promised land. Um, then up come these people and they look rough and they have old food, moldy food, and they have uh, you know, just messed up clothes. They've been traveling a long distance and they said, we've traveled so far, can we make a peace treaty with you? And, and the text is so interesting because it says specifically, and they did not uh, speak to the Lord about it. Be careful when you make those sort of decisions. And come to find out they made a peace treaty with the people of Gibeon, which were Canaanites, just down the road. And as soon as Joshua and his men are coming in to destroy it, they bring forth this peace treaty right here. 
And the, the people mourn and wail, and they're like, what do we do? And Joshua said, well, we're going to make you woodcutters and water carriers for the, for the priesthood. They were not part of the priesthood, but they would make it for the, the people who were working the priest. And the Lord, in his kindness, I think, will save many Canaanites through this um, sin on the part of the people. Uh, one interesting name in the midst of this is... There's many, but one in particular I'll draw to your attention is Bukbuk. That's verse 51, the sons of Bukbuk. And you go, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. It, it's a, in all likelihood, it's a nickname, and it's a nickname based upon one of two um, aspects about him. Uh, it means bottle. And so can you think of the bottles back at that time? It had a kind of a, they were a clay container, big body, small neck, Maybe, maybe that's why they called him that, Buck Book. I think in all likelihood, it actually could be an onomatopoeia. You say, oh, we're in the deep end. No, we're not in the deep end. You use onomatopoeias all the time. It's a Greek term that means that you gave, it, you gave the, uh, the term this name because it sounds like um, what it is. Like, for instance, when, you, when a car crashes, Crash is an onomatopoeia. You hear your cat do what? Yeah, some of y'all, meow. Yes, you're, good job. Uh, yeah, it, it makes the sound is an onomatopoeia. Dogs bark, okay, that's an onomatopoeia. Uh, buck book is, could very well be an onomatopoeia. The idea is that this man talks so much uh, that so he sounds like water sort of bubbling from a bottle. Buck, book, 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 yeah. So that's what they called him that. Continuing on, verse 55 through 58, the sons of Solomon's servants. Here we have the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasaphoreth, the sons of Peruda, sons of Jaala, sons of Darkon, sons of Gedel, sons of Shephatiah, sons of Hatil, sons of Pokereth, Hazebam, sons of Ami, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. In all likelihood, these seems to be uh, more descendants of Canaanites. As compared to the previous group that they served in the temple, these served Solomon's servants. They, were, um, they didn't serve in the temple. They served in ways that would be, oh, beneficial to other aspects. Like, for instance, this name, um, sons of Pokereth Hazabim, that means gazelle keeper. <laughs> so they kept Solomon's gazelles, obviously, and they were the grandsons of those who did so. Now the, the, uh, the chapter turns kind of negative on purpose. Now we have the Israelites of doubtful origin, verse 59 and 60. The following were those who came up from Telmeth, or rather Telma, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Amir, but they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Sons of Deleah, sons of Tobiah, sons of Nakoda, 652. So this should probably bring a frown to your face. We have 652 people that could not prove their ancestry. No claim to tribal lands. So did they go? Did they come back? It's hard to tell exactly what happened to them, but it's very sad. And yet I don't feel that sorry for them because we don't really know if they were of uh, the Jewish line. Keep in mind in this, Jewish families kept genealogies to, to prove Jewish descent. 
they kept it in memory. Now, for me, I can only go back about seven generations. Uh, James N. Brown in the late 1700s. I don't, some of you can go back much further than that. I can't. Some of you are lucky to get to remember your grandparents' names. But these people, the Jews know their genealogy. Let me give you an example of that. Um, it's not an example of the Jews, but it is an example of the Arabs, which uh, obviously they're both Semitic. Alec Kirkbride, who is a British diplomat, he served in the Middle East during the early 20th century, told of a time when he was in an Arab encampment. He wrote, an Arab got up and related the, the history of his forebears back to 40 generations. 40 generations. That would take it back to the 800s AD. And he writes, others could have done the same, telling who married and who begat whom, where they lived, and frequently what they had done and where they wandered. Kirk Bride said it sounded exactly like a chapter of genealogy right out of the Bible. As I've told you, I think a couple of Sundays ago, the Pharisees never questioned Jesus' genealogy. Never. Why? They knew it. They were Pharisees. Jesus knew it. You would know. You could go back many, many generations. I, I've been told in studying this chapter that uh, people actually have been won to Jesus Christ by the genealogies, especially in those countries where genealogies was vitally important. And when they see this, they go, it must mean business. If a God of the universe has so much care and concern for people, I want to know this God. One last group is the priests of doubtful origin. They are completely removed, it seems. Verse 61 through 63. Also of the sons of the priests, sons of Habaiah, sons of Akaz, sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. We'll talk about that in a second. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult. So the Urim and Thummim, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Barzillai the Gileadite, he was a rich uh, man who was a loyal supporter of David, King David, when David was on the run in 2 Samuel 21. Um, but what happened was this. An ancient priest married one of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and became his heir. And he owned land, which should make you kind of scratch your head and you say, wait a second, if he's of the priesthood, he's not supposed to own land. He's not, he wasn't supposed to actually intermarry with Barzillai the Gileadite, who was not Levite. What do you do with that? Well, it seems that this ancient priest traded the Lord as his portion in favor of land, money. Jesus warns about this in Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and money. So, um, beyond him, we've got all this whole group of priests that could not serve as priests until the high priest determined who the true descendants of Aaron were. How do you do that? The Urim and Thummim. Somebody goes, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I'm giving you a lot today. Hold on, folks. Urim and Thummim, it's in the Hebrew. It means lights and perfections. It's talked about in Exodus 28. It seems to be two flat objects, maybe stones, that the high priest would put in his uh, breastplate to determine the will of God. 
We don't know exactly how that worked. Josephus seemed to think that he wrote that, that the stone that illuminated would give the right answer. Josephus sometimes can exaggerate, though. Uh, ultimately, the answer would be yes or no, or sometimes God just wouldn't answer. Sometimes, perhaps, the, the high priest would look at the stones and go, I, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, that happened, actually, in 1 Samuel 14, where King Saul was not receiving any answers from the Lord. So, these poor priests cannot go, and they're excluded until they could find out who was truly of the line of Aaron. Uh, verse 64 through 67, by the way, don't you, aren't you so more thankful for the Holy Spirit, which is our guide in life? We don't need stones. Verse 64 through 67, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, and their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Now, you might know the, these numbers are not adding up exactly, and I'm okay with that. The total here, if you totaled everything together, uh, well, it says there's roughly 40-something thousand, but when you sum up all these groups, it only comes to about 29,000. And I think the reason for that is the same reason where Jesus feeds the 5,000, or also known as Jesus feeds the 20,000, or 25,000. Uh, we see that many times the numbers are only the men listed. And that's the case when Jesus fed the 5,000. There were actually much more than that. And same here as well. We do know, though, that this is pretty shocking because only roughly 50,000 people came back from Babylon. Josephus tells us uh, that many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that is not us today. You see, the Jews came to Babylon to be disciplined, to learn the lessons. The Lord mercifully blessed them financially and materially. They were never supposed to stay there. When I look at our own lives, the Lord has us on this life to discipline, to disciple us, to teach us, and he even blesses us materially and financially, but never to stay here. This is not our investment place. Our investment place is up there. American missionaries went to Hawaii in the 1800s, and there's a famous statement about them that sadly smacks me in the face. It says this, it has been said that the American missionaries came to Hawaii to do good, and they did very well indeed. You see, their good purpose of going and making disciples soon gave way to just money and financial gain and retirement. And there's nothing wrong with those things. To be clear, I'm thankful for money. I'm thankful for the possessions. Uh, and yet be careful because it can quickly take the throne. Finally, verse 68 through 70, I told you all we'd get through this. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the, of the work <clears throat> 61,000 derricks or drachmas, which is, a, which is a Greek term, of gold, and 5,000 minas, which is uh, Babylonian currency, of silver. 
and a hundred priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Did you notice how much they gave? According to their ability? That sounds so familiar. Yeah, that's Paul uses that. The Spirit gives him that. Second Chronic, or rather, 2 Corinthians 8.3, I testify that according to their ability, they, they gave, and beyond their ability, they gave their own accord. Now, if I can put this to dead right, uh, to, to dead, can I put this in the ground right now is what I'm trying to say. There's no question as to whether a child of God gives money to the body of Christ, to the things of the Lord. It comes down to how much he gives. There is never the question, how much do I have to give to be obedient, but how much can I give? 2 Corinthians 9 how, uh, says in verse 7, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So point being is that, hey, these people, for them, part of biblical worship is giving, and they were going to give. They knew that this stuff was going to go to the work of the Lord. I want to say one other thing, and then we'll close with the points of application. Um, by the way, if you're wondering, financially, they gave 1,100 pounds of gold and almost three tons of silver. The first thing they do is they give to the work of the Lord. They didn't wait to see, well, how much have we got left at the end of the year? So some people would say, Jeff, it looks, it looks a little bit like racism at the very end. You know, they're excluding people that are non-Jews, and yet, folks, you need to remember the Old Testament, specifically the Torah, of the first five books. God commands his people in the Old Testament to be ethnically separate. If the line of Judah turns to, out to be Gentile, so does the promised Messiah. He doesn't keep God's word. Uh, by the way, they did later on fall into the danger of every second generation. You know what the, you know what the danger of every second generation is? Pride, superiority. So by the time of Christ, he, he, he can say, if, you, if these people were being quiet, I can even get the stones to cry out. I don't need the ethnic Jews to cry out. We've covered a lot today. There's many applications the Lord could bring to your mind, and I pray that he does. But three things really stood out for me, and that is, number one, the Lord is faithful. He's faithful. The chapter showcases God's faithfulness to bring a remnant back to Israel as he promised Jesus can say, all that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you don't know him yet as your Savior, come to him. You don't have to worry if he is the one, if you're the one chosen. You come and you are. Number two, when the Lord restores his people, he does not erase the consequences of their sins. Can I get an amen on that? It's true in our lives, it's true in mine. They did not return to rebuilt cities and beautiful land. They came back to rubble, which required hard work to return to the cities and land back to good condition. Spiritually speaking, it's true of us. The Lord can and he does restore to us the years the locusts have eaten. It speaks about in Joel too. And yet the consequences of living for our own kingdom are still there. They stay with us. Number three, to end on a very positive note, though, is when the Lord restores you, pray him, praise him for it, meaning restore you unto life like you became a believer, or maybe there was a time you were walking away for a time, and the Lord brought you back. 
the Lord may give you humility where you never had it. He may give you a heart for those who have wasted their lives on the stuff of this world or a deeper relationship with Christ, make you more fruitful for the kingdom, for the legs that he's had to break. So the rubble is still there. Learn from it. Thank him for bringing you back and get back in the saddle again. You may wonder, what are these restored people like, was it, Jeff, is there any sort of, I don't know, documentation about how they felt? What was their thoughts about going back? Actually, the Bible tells you. Psalm 126, it says, uh, they, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Why are they so excited? They're going home. They're going home. Y'all... We are the same way. We are going home. Question to ask yourself, is your name on the list of those that are going home? Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up this time to you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray that you would just grant us um, just the steadfastness of Christ, that we would seek to grow to become more like him. Lord, for anybody in here who's not yet know you yet, Lord, I pray that you'd save him that they would trust in you uh, as Lord and Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, help us remember that we are going home. Time is short. Uh, we have nothing to prove in the sense of we are on the team. We wear the jersey of Christ. Uh, but Lord, on the times that we have left, Lord, we pray that we would live for you, that we would not focus on the rubble of our lives, but we would focus on the fact that you brought us back. And even the rubble you're using for your your glory and our good. In your son's name we pray it, amen.